You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual, but in extraordinary circumstances, is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you and have you seen anything like it? Uh, Giles, I'm well. It's a beautiful sunny day in Sydney. My electricity system's working normally. Perhaps we should call it the Energy Insiders Crisis podcast, but uh, what... what... What, uh, what, in your view, um, what, what's the most important thing do you think that our listeners should be aware of going forward? Oh, my goodness, mate. That's a difficult question. Um, I'm just trying to work out how we get here. Look, um, I think I don't know whether anyone actually knows what happens over the next um, hour, day, week or weeks or months. I mean, we kind of already we we know what the solution to this um, crisis is it's to build more renewables and storage and switch to a cleaner smarter cheaper more reliable system i think what we've learned this week is the scale of the stuff up that we've created by basically having this go slow on the transition and the investment and the infrastructure that we've all known that's been needed. You go back into 2000, 2005, 2010, all the reports are there saying, if we're going to do this transition, we need this, we need to change that. And it's been resisted at every point by the fossil fuel industry and their lobbyists. And now we've just basically just created this cluster bus um, as it all comes crashing down, as inevitably the price of coal and gas soars to stratospheric levels. And um, look, I wrote in a piece earlier on this week that I think actually the fossil fuel industry, the lobby, uh, particularly the gas generators, basically, it came to a point this week that they lost all perspective. They forgot what they were doing. Therefore, they forgot that this is actually an essential service on whom, uh, on which people's lives and livelihoods depend. Uh, and I think... Um, Look, maybe it's the crisis that we had to have so we can actually forget about their lobbying and their short-sightedness and their selfishness and actually start listening to the people who understand and want to make this transition and have got some really good ideas but who have largely been unheard or ignored up till now. There's my rant, David. What's yours? Well, the first thing I'd like to say, and by the time this goes to air, it may not be relevant, but we're in a um, uh, suspended market at the moment and the outcome of that is that I think the electricity prices that uh, uh, will be paid to generators will be mostly between $200 and $300 a megawatt hour for the next few days. And that that will bring this thing called the cumulative price, which is the, uh, as it says, the added up price for a, a series of half hours down below uh, the legislated level and so that the normal market operation can resume. So that's uh, will be what I think the net effect of the administrative system will be. But someone might tell me I'm wrong. The well, next thing, go on. I, I, I just wonder about that. I, I know that's going to be the sort of the the the, the, the price. I, I think there's still going to be compensation claims which may put that price um, back up. And I think that the cumulative price threshold had exceeded it so much. I mean, I think it was five times the cumulative price threshold in some states. So I'm not too sure how quickly it's going to unwind. Anyway, I'm not absolutely clear on this, but 
Sorry to interrupt. No, that's that's good, Giles. Uh, uh, and I agree it will take time to unwind. And I agree there will be compensation because at $300, if you are paying for, uh, $40 a gigajoule for gas as a gas generator, if you are, then certainly you can't get uh, make any money at $300 a megawatt hour. So they will have to seek compensation and there is a compensation mechanism. That's one point. The second point, just getting back to the root causes, and while it's fine and appropriate, I think, to blame uh, the federal government uh, and, and the policy problems that we've had there, I also think myself the big three Gentailers have got an incredible amount to answer for in two respects. Each of the big three has closed one coal generator and hasn't built anything to replace it, right? So they have a, uh, uh, actively uh, caused uh, the situation to develop by not building enough wind and solar, frankly, in front of closing the coal generation. I think the, the, the worst culprit in this regard in some ways is, is, is Origin, which announced this closure of a Raring station, the biggest generator in New South Wales, uh, without putting in place anything to replace it other than talking about a battery. I mean, that is, that is useless, frankly, to everyone. It's useless to their shareholders, it's, it's useless to the consumers, uh, and it's useless to governments. Uh, and all three are the same, whether it's Energy Australia closing your lawn or AGL closing the deal. The second thing is that because electricity prices were so very low last year, I think AGL just threw in the towel on maintenance, or that's the way it looks today. I mean, we've had this unit at Loyang blow up, the same unit that blew up before. It's costing at least $70 million pre-tax with no insurance to shareholders this time, and almost certainly more. On top of that, in New South Wales, over the last five or eight days, they have had 1,200 megawatts out of 4,000 at Liddell and Bayswater operating. That is, that is, you know, it's incompetent. Uh, at the, it would be the kindest description I could make for that, frankly. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, if you think about that 1,200 megawatts that is operating at max, 950 of it, more or less, is more or less dedicated one way or another to Tomago, will leave virtually nothing for anyone else. So it is very fortunate, Giles, that all of, miraculously, two big wind farms in Victoria, uh, uh, Mirabool and Stockyard Hill, have suddenly been able to come up to full production after, after having been stymied by technical issues uh, at AEMO, I think, for, for two years. But in the last two days, they've suddenly come good. It's a miracle. <laughs> And, and, and then in a single bound, they were set free. <laughs> yes, uh, and also wind generation generally has been very unseasonally strong for this time of year, so that's great, but the worry is that it will go back to its normal seasonal pattern. Mm. Uh, uh, so, uh, in, in, Yes, indeed. In fact, there was a record set in South Australia and Victoria um, um, this week on uh, Tuesday afternoon, which helped relieve the prices for at least a short period of time. So the, we've seen that when renewables can get a vast majority of the market, they sort of free the market from the uh, control of the gas generators. But um, as soon as gas generators are back in control of the market, they go the prices. Dave, I've got a question, though, about, look, I understand what you're saying about the big utilities not replacing their coal-fired generators that closed down. But is it their responsibility to replace like for like, or is it the market's responsibility? Why hasn't the market jumped in to replace it? Uh, that's a good question. It, uh, basically, because it's the big three uh, gentailers, in a sense, that control the actual load because they sell, you know, let's say 65% of the energy that's actually sold in the national electricity market. So 
even though their customers have been going outside them, it's hard. The function of uh, a retailer, in my opinion, is to buy long and sell short. So they buy a few big units of power, like a wind farm or whatever, and sell little chunks of it to individual customers. It's, uh, if, you, if you want to bypass the gentailer, it's, it's, it's more difficult to do. Um, um, and no, it's not their legal responsibility to do it. And obviously management have managed the affairs in what they think was the best way. It's just that it's been a disaster. Shareholders uh, are seeing the share prices falling. I mean, energy, half of Energy Australia, or, or, you know, it's, 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 it needs to raise money. Uh, Origins had profit downgrades, not for the lots of them over the years, relating to its uh, um, uh, um, a function. And AGL has had more changes of management than I've had changes of underwear, you know. I mean, it's uh, because it just can't work out the right strategy at all. And I feel sorry, in a sense, for people at AGL who've probably worked in a really hard way and been just let down by their leaders continuously. Mm. How do we get ourselves out of this pickle, David? Um, it's not clear. We know what the long-term solution is. Um, what are the short-term and the medium-term measures that can be contemplated? Uh, well, in the, the short term, like Mount Power Piper Power Station, which had a unit out for maintenance, for instance, that, that seems to have come back on. So it's a matter of getting some coal stations that were uh, back running in the very, very short term uh, and also having the gas generators operate in the evenings. Uh, and then as we move into spring, I personally think things will improve a lot. I mean, as you know, uh, uh, we have been saying for some years that we expected the peak problems in the NEM to occur to move to winter because that's the time when wind and solar production are down and winter heating demand is up and move away from summer. It used to be summer was the peak problem time, but now we've got so much more solar in summer that it kind of overcomes that. Uh, so the problem is in winter. Uh, and as we move into spring, that problem will reduce. That's uh, And then in the medium term, of course, we just need to build lots of wind and solar. And the state that could probably do more to help that than anyone else is actually Queensland, you know, where, uh, you know, they are due to make a big energy statement on policy that's six months late. Uh, they've got no policy to meet their 2030 target uh, at the moment. They won't say what they're going to do with the coal-fired generation, even though Rio has called for... Uh, tenders up at uh, the Boyne Island smelter, which means the end for Gladstone. You know, the Queensland government needs to get ahead of the curve instead of falling behind it all the time, at least. In, and they're the ones that, frankly, uh, hold the switch in the short term. Um, one interesting piece of news that came amid this was in Western Australia. They announced the closure of the last of the state-owned generators at Mooja and Collie by 2029. Uh, they're owned by Synergy. $3.8 billion to be invested in new renewables and quite a lot of storage. Uh, we're just try trying to clarify exactly how much storage over what period of time. But what was really interesting about what their energy minister um, said was that basically by getting rid of coal now and planning um, ahead to replace it with storage and renewables, that $3.8 billion will be paid back very, very quickly because without it, they were facing inevitable rises in costs and maintenance and fuel and everything like that. And the switch to renewables and storage um, is a much, much cheaper option than continuing with fossil fuels. So thank God someone's come out and said that. Um, that's true, Giles, and, and, and it's, it's great to see. Well, I think, you know, the thing is we've got a great interview uh, guest to speak this week, uh, Alistair Dutton, who's one of the world's leading experts on offshore wind, and I think we've also got uh, a, a new sponsor, Giles. 
Yes, we do. Look, we'll just take a quick break and uh, have a message from our new sponsor. JetCharge is the largest EV charging infrastructure company in Australia. Operating nationwide, JetCharge has spent the last decade providing hassle-free EV charging services to thousands of businesses and EV drivers. JetCharge also specialises in helping maximise your use of renewable energy and are the leaders in vehicle-to-grid integrated solutions. From home charger installations to the largest EV charging projects in Australia, JetCharge is paving the way for an electric future together. And we'd like to thank JetCharge uh, for their um, sponsorship of the podcast, along, of course, with our regular sponsors, um, Pylon and Evergen. Um, David, introduce your interview that you did with Alistair Dutton. So I was fortunate enough to make contact with Alistair Dutton, who is the chief executive of Advent.re, but has a long background in advising the UK government and I think over 20 other countries, including Japan and India, uh, about how to develop offshore wind. And without further ado, uh, here we are. Uh, hi, Alistair Dutton. Thanks uh, very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Good to meet you. Um, you've got a fantastic background in offshore wind development and have had a lot to do with um, uh, offshore wind in the UK and contributed to uh, uh, World Bank reports and uh, Global Wind uh, Energy Council reports. And I wondered if you could just tell me a little bit about, just for, just for a minute or so, about what led to the offshore wind industry getting developed in Europe. Certainly. Um, so my time in offshore wind really started in 2006, but before me, uh, the Danes had worked out that offshore wind was going to be a good thing and um, they started the market off and then the UK picked up in the early 2000s and it was more of an industrial strategy than an energy strategy uh, because the fundamentals were an island near the Atlantic, lots of seabed and it's proved correct. So um, UK then picked up the baton uh, and created the volume in the market and was followed by Germany, Netherlands and Belgium and still Denmark. And that created the volume that we see today. And, uh, of course, the other thing uh, that we're going to talk some more about, I'm sure, is that the initially the costs started very high, but they've come down a lot. Could you just talk, uh, I don't want to spend necessarily all the time, there's a lot of other stuff I want to talk about, but I, I'm just interested to understand about uh, a little bit about what's, uh, in your opinion, the contributing factors in, in Europe so far to costs coming down. Yeah, originally costs went up because people underestimated how difficult it was to work offshore. Um, then um, we got to some volume, but still prices were much too high and government set targets for those costs to come down. And I can explain more about the ways we did it, but um, the, the important elements was that the industry now was investing fully in offshore wind specific design turbines, which were getting bigger, higher yield, higher efficiency. Also, the cost of capital was coming down because the low cost money, people like pension funds, had belief in the sector. And then lastly, competition through the auctions for what are called contract for difference for power prices. 
And those three combined just really made the market move much faster than anybody predicted. And we hit the government target four years early. That's a fantastic effort. Uh, and I, I'll come back to that. But at the moment, I guess I'm uh, interested in the repower in Europe and the fit for 55 policy packages, which envisage a much bigger role still for offshore wind. And I read also that four countries have agreed to set much higher, I think 150 gigawatts between them. I, I might have that wrong by 2050, but and certainly a lot of growth to 2030. In, in your view, how much, uh, firstly, how much do you think could, if everything went well, realistically be put into Europe or will be put into Europe by say 2030 or 2035? So things are going well. Um, it is such a powerful and dominant technology and the turbines have now got to, you know, we're up at 15 megawatts with even larger turbines, so more than double what you'd find onshore. Um, the sorts of numbers that are around, and yes, actually 150 was the correct number, um, Europe will get to um, 300 gigawatts by 2050 just for the European Union, and we expect 150 gigawatts from UK Norway and a few other smaller countries. Um, and the trajectory at the moment is that 2030 will be very doable. Um, most of the projects that we need are already in the pipeline. And so um, when I read about this from some of the uh, turbine, well, let me ask it another way. At the same time, most of the leading wind turbine suppliers, manufacturers, are unprofitable uh, and I have also read that there's a tremendous amount of as there is in Australia with red red tapes the wrong word but a lot of permitting required and you know social license uh, or competing uses for the wa uh, water and stuff I, I, as you develop the industry what are the sort of factors that can make it go better in your opinion and what is the role for governments in, in all of this? Um, so firstly, uh, yes, it does need to go faster. Um, typical project takes at least seven years from the award of seabed to getting constructed and some longer than that. The target by the UK government is to reduce the permitting time from four years to one year, which I think is remarkable. Um, another is to, instead of doing the development in a sequence, to do some of it in parallel and have the power purchase auctions at the, about the same time as the consenting process. So there are techniques to, to bring that forward. And government's absolutely critical, as they have been all the way along. Um, a lot of people criticise governments, but on offshore wind, they've been absolutely solid. They like the technology and the fact that um, the public like the technology as well. So they set the regulations and they have the consenting bodies. So they're front and central in the whole offshore wind market. And so uh, do we need to have like uh, renewable energy islands, which on land in Australia, we would call renewable energy zones. And here in Australia, there's also always about anything to do with renewable energy, a big discussion about transmission and connections to the grid. 
Uh, how are you seeing those issues develop in Europe? Um, not just in Europe, but elsewhere around the world. Best practice is for government to identify areas. In the US, they're called wind energy areas. In UK, they're called zones. But large areas that um, would be suitable for wind farms to be located within. And so that works at sea as, as it does in Australia on land. Um, I don't recall the second half of your question. Well, like, just just uh, transmission and and how and, and and how I guess that should be managed. You know, should governments, I suppose, or should uh, what's the best way to arrange transmission access to these renewable energy zones? I mean, is that a yeah? So um, I would say one step back. The country first of all needs to put offshore wind onto strategy. And then all the government bodies and uh, public bodies can work to that aim. In the case of um, the scale of offshore wind, because we're now at projects at least 500 megawatts, maybe two gigawatts, it's going to need reinforcement of, of the grid. And for each of the grid bodies to know that they're part of that journey and make those investments ahead of time. So again, we come back to the government being uh, at the lead to create that. But it's all perfectly doable. And uh, while I'm dealing with the big areas, I guess I've always been interested that since I started looking at offshore wind, Australia has a uh, historically been one of the world's top three energy exporters. And of course, it's all, all of our energy that we export goes to Asia. Uh, and it's all, of course, coal and and gas, uh, and that, in you know, in my view of the world, is going away over the next uh, period, ten or twenty years. And it seems to me that there's tremendous potential in Asia for offshore wind. I think China's going to become the largest offshore wind developer, and I don't, but I don't know how big it can be. But also Japan and South Korea. I wondered if you could just talk about maybe each of those countries and, and how you're seeing their future in, in, in for this technology. So I think the first thing to say is that Australia has the same opportunity to export offshore wind power, probably in the form of hydrogen, uh, as it has previously done with fossil fuels. And the costs are now lower than fossil fuels in many jurisdictions. Um, if you then go to the countries that you've mentioned, China already now is leading the world um, with 26 gigawatts, I believe it is, that they have installed with a massive build out last year. Uh, so they overtook the UK. Then uh, elsewhere in Asia, Japan has put together its offshore wind uh, strategy to have up to 45 gigawatts by 2040. Um, China will still be the biggest by far uh, from the way that they're going about it at the moment. And we're starting to see South Korea, Vietnam, Philippines. So offshore wind is on its way to Australia and it will arrive. It's just a matter of how and when. But I, I guess I am interested in, in uh, Japan and uh, because there they seem to have had, well, firstly, there's not as much uh, uh, fixed foundation uh, the oceans are deeper generally, quicker, so they'll need to go to floating offshore wind. And then I think they've been very worried, as I can understand it, about the, the, the costs. 
and the need to develop their own sort of local supply chain. Let me uh, step back from that and just ask a question. If you were advising the Japanese government about the best way to have a very large uh, offshore wind build out, much bigger than what they're even going for now, uh, what would you tell them are the, would be the keys to doing it well? Well, I have been advising the Japanese government through my work at GWEC. Um, I'm now up to 34 countries worldwide that I've provided offshore wind advice. And the first big piece of advice was to do a cost reduction study to understand the market and have some evidence that prices would fall. So through GWEC and working with the Japan Wind Power Association, we funded such a study which showed that the numbers, the target numbers for power, eight to nine yen per kilowatt hour, were feasible if the market was sufficiently large, and hence the figure of 45 gigawatts. Um, the cost of floating is still higher than fixed foundations, but is coming down. And each year at, at GWEC, we do a, an outlook 10 years ahead. and I'm still impressed how the last three years the belief in, offsh in offshore wind floating has gone up and up and up. So there are two schools of thought. One is that around 2030 there'll be an equal price and another school that it will take a bit longer. And, and uh, yeah, and, and uh, I guess another country that's been is, is India. Uh, do you talk to them as well? Yes. Yes, um, we've been talking with India for about eight years now. Um, they have slightly different uh, challenges that they've got very low cost onshore wind and solar. But even India at its scale is worrying about land use. So they're turn to, turning, probably more accurate, to offshore wind and um, particularly at the south uh, of a state called Tamil Nadu, um, there's a very good wind resource. But actually, India's wind, offshore wind resource is nothing like as big as Australia's. Australia, I think, is the sixth largest in the world in terms of wind resource offshore. Yes, but um, yes, but our onshore wind resource is also very good, and we're a big country. Uh, and this is where, uh, and for the time being at least, offshore wind in Australia uh, it does have a higher cost. Uh, it seems to me a like levelised cost of electricity, long run marginal cost, uh, than either onshore wind and certainly than solar. So to me, uh, you know, it's, a, it's not quite as obvious that uh, offshore wind is, is really needed in Australia in the same way. But I mean, what do you think? So, so that's a perfectly good challenge. And I remember those statements being made 12 years ago in the US. And what do we have now? We have a market that is planning to build 30 gigawatts by 2030. And then in Brazil, they similarly have the same glorious opportunity with excess resource. And they also want offshore wind. And the, the pieces seem to be uh, in the US, it's the states. They procure the power and they want their own power. They don't want to buy it from Texas. So that's one dynamic. And also it's jobs. Offshore wind um, delivers twice as many jobs per megawatt than onshore wind. 
because it's more complex and, as you said, more expensive. But that does mean jobs. And then um, in Brazil, it's more about diversity. So they've got a lot of hydropower, which is suffering from El Nino effects. So they see offshore wind as being very complementary. And offshore wind has a higher capacity factor than onshore wind and certainly more than solar PV. So it's a better quality of renewable energy on the system. So once you piece those together, it would seem that there is a change in countries not dissimilar to Australia. I agree with that, Alistair. And I think uh, when you talked about the United States and the states, you exactly described to me Victoria, which, uh, you know, under the current plans without offshore wind would would lose market share of energy in Australia to competing states. And Victorians, like everyone else, always want to have it in their backyard and they want, want the jobs uh, in their backyard, provided it's not someone who's going to complain's backyard <laughs> um, about the transmission or the turbines. Um, in general, you, you made another interesting point that, that the population is generally in favour of offshore wind. Uh, I wonder, is that just because it's new and they haven't had time to work out what they don't like about it yet? Or is it because it's just out of sight and out of mind? Or, or what do you think? Um, what we've seen is everybody has an opinion about offshore wind, although they also admit they don't know very much about it. Um, <laughs> and that, that's fine. But the fact, particularly the fact that they are a long distance from shore and in many cases out of sight means that you don't get the same uh, NIMBY effect that you mentioned. And when you're consenting, you're dealing with organizations, not individuals. So it's a more evidence-based um, discussion. And then the fact that they create so many jobs, the politicians just adore. Uh, and in fact, when people talk about industrial strategy in the UK, the politicians' first example is always offshore wind. It's got that mixture of factors which make it particularly attractive politically. And uh, what about the uh, sort of supply chain issues? Let's, if I just talk, mostly I am interested in the medium term uh, out to 2030, but if we just talk about as an industry a little bit generally at the moment, what, as I said, the turbine manufacturers are all losing money. Uh, um, uh, 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 what's its name? The Vestas uh, is actually losing cash when I looked at its last quarterly accounts, which, which won't go on for very long, I'm prepared to bet, as a financial analyst. Uh, what do you see as the, uh, could you just talk a little bit about what you see in that and how it's going to improve or, and what's causing it and therefore is how to fix it? Yeah, so as I said earlier, the dramatic reduction in cost of energy um, has large, largely been driven through competition and that means that the whole of the supply chain has uh, had to deliver much lower costs and therefore lower margin uh, in in their um, processes. But we've now got to a stage where cost is not the issue. Um, and given the sorts of uh, targets that we need to, for 2050 globally, where we need to get 2,000 gigawatts of offshore wind to meet the IEA and IRENA 1.5 degree C scenarios, 
we need to get profitability back into the supply chain so it becomes even more investable. So what we're starting to see is governments moving away from solely price-only uh, price auctions and to factor in other things that make it attractive for projects to be in that country. And we go back to jobs and uh, inward investment. And, and yes, jobs and inward... Inv I mean, construction jobs are one thing, but they... if the And I guess the construction jobs are semi-permanent while the industry has been built, which can take, you know, maybe 20 years. But what else can governments factor in besides PPAs, uh, lowest price, given that, by and large, communities have an expectation that competition will be around those sort of things? Yeah, the piece that you missed out was the operations and maintenance jobs, which last for 30 years for each project. Um, so, yes, there is a peak during the design, construction, phase but there's also a, a substantial um, labor force required after that and then throughout the supply chain um, which will be feeding multiple projects in multiple countries as well so it's because the fo single focus has been on price people are only now really starting to think about those other factors but i'm confident that because it's logical that that profitability will return to the sector. Yes, I think I, I would be as well. And let me just go back to the, I think the main reason why I, I, I asked you to join this uh, Energy Insiders, and, and it's it's incredibly interesting conversation to me to hear from someone uh, about this uh, that knows what they're talking about. It's just that, um, again, if we're looking at the planning for the industry and getting ahead, how important uh, or what what's the role for, for governments generally? Is it to set for really firm targets that, that everyone can get around and provide the renewable energy zones? And, and you know, could you just generally talk about how you see the balance between the private and the public sector? Yeah, so um, government definitely has a leadership role. And we understand in Australia, because I've been working with uh, some of your good folk for the last four years. Uh, it's been more about an enabling framework, i.e. not getting in the way of projects being developed. Now you have a new government and we're all really interested to see whether they want to move into more of a leadership role. And yes, Victoria has its nine gigawatt target. Great. We saw the same effects in the US with Massachusetts being the first to come out with a target. Then New York came out with a bigger target and New Jersey with an even bigger target. So Massachusetts had to increase its target. I'm intrigued to see whether something similar will happen in Australia. Um, and the one thing that's missing for me in Australia at the moment is a federal target. So in the US, the individual states set targets. The government had done studies, um, 86 gigawatts by 2050 was the first big study. And then with the Biden administration, they've come in with a 30 gigawatt target by 2030. So it's now glued together. And that's what I don't yet see in Australia. So that's the space I would be wanting the government to work in. And the target is one thing, but the policies to achieve a target, uh, I guess, what were the policies in, in that have made it go ahead in Europe, the, the, the policies as opposed to the targets? I mean, a, a willingness is a really important thing. I, I, I get that. And the signals and the investor confidence it provides. 
but I, I always feel that the target of winning the war won't actually get there without a, a strategy and a, and, and a policy to actually prosecute it. Absolutely. So um, one of the areas is then permitting, what in the UK we call consenting, so that everybody understands what that process is, who the developers have to deal with, working with stakeholders, and bear in mind you've got a different set of stakeholders to purely onshore. Um, a big one is the Ministry of Defence, who start off by thinking renewable energy is not part of our role, but if it's part again of this national position, then they fall into, into line. Um, then beyond the consenting, which needs to be done in a tidy time, uh, is then the procurement of uh, electricity, power purchase agreements, which need to go through their own rounds, probably every two years, trying to make the whole industry uh, predictable for developers and the supply chain. Good. Alistair, in a remarkably short time, uh, we've actually covered uh, a lot of the ground that I wanted to cover. But if you wanted to just uh, talk about some other, make some other comments that you would advise us folk in here, let me talk about offshore wind and hydrogen just for a second. There's a lot of people that want to use offshore wind to make hydrogen, but I I get grumpy when I think that hydrogen sort of has got a, a way to go before it, um, it's like the, the very end of the decarbonisation chain, to my way of thinking. But there's so much more that we could do in just bulk energy supply, whether it's in Europe, which is still only at about 20% or something, or, or, or in Japan, where it's next to nothing, uh, or even in China, or even in Australia, where it's 25%. We could do so much more by just uh, decarbonising electricity uh, 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 before we had to race out into all these other sort of more ambitious goals? Yeah, hydrogen's, um, I think we're on the sort of second main uh, interest in hydrogen. The first time sort of early 2000s that I recall, it was just too expensive. But now you've got renewable en electricity at such low prices, it comes back into um, view. Of course, there's this journey from grey hydrogen to blue to green, or in, in uh, Brazil, they have eight different colours for the uh, types of hydrogen. So it's, it is a long journey, and I'm sure it's going to have some complications along the way. But I think it does fit in your energy strategy, because to the south of Australia, the winds are world class. And it's in those sorts of places that low-cost hydrogen will be produced and shipped around the world. Exactly how it's used, that's not really my domain, but um, and it may not be hydrogen. The other um, uses we're seeing in South Africa is desalination, uh, making anything, you know, power to X, something with hydrogen as a, an input. Uh, they're all possible, but I do agree with you Let's concentrate on today's game of making electricity whilst enabling that future game uh, of making hydrogen and a lot more. And in, coming back to Asia, just finally, I mean, I, I sort of have a vision that offshore wind is available to just about every country. And yes, Australia has a very good resource, but so do lots of other places have some resource. Do, do you think that offshore wind, I mean... Could it be like the main source of energy to Asia, do you think? Or is it only ever going to be 
part of a, a supporting part of a, a broader portfolio? How, how big can it realistically be? Um, so it can be very big, right? Just uh, And numbers in offshore wind are always big, just at project scale, but at market scale, even more impressive. And in certain places like Vietnam, um, Philippines, it could become dominant, which is what we expect in Europe by uh, 2050. There'll be slightly more offshore wind than there will be onshore wind. Um, but we're seeing this global effect, which are, so Asia is a focus for, for you, you guys, but from Europe to Asia, now the US, um, Latin America is coming up fast, uh, South Africa I mentioned, the piece of the global puzzle that's missing for me is Australia and New Zealand. And you're going to benefit from all the other advances made, both in technology and techniques, uh, both policy as well as construction. So it is already arriving as a development, but it's, it's fundamental that um, with the oil wind resource and the advance of the industry, that the opportunity for Australia will be huge. How huge and when is down to your government largely. Alistair Dutton, that seems like a very good place to, to finish up this conversation. I'd like to say thanks again for uh, one of the more interesting conversations I've had uh, recently on Energy Insiders. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, and thank you for your time. And that was Alistair Dutton. Um, David, look, fascinating stuff. I mean, certainly the interest in offshore wind is growing uh, quite considerably. We've got a new CEO appointed to Star of the South, Um just recently, uh, we've also had Corio, the Macquarie um, offshoot, or the Macquarie-owned offshore wind farm specialist, announced a new 2.5 gigawatt project in Gippsland, still very early stages, but clearly shows their interest. Um, and um, people, Flotation Energy and others have been talking about their projects. So um, we're probably going to need it all. Uh, it does seem so. I do conti continue to be concerned about the cost in Australia, uh, where, in my opinion, we still have a lot of onshore wind and solar that we can develop more quickly, and also the length of time it takes to develop offshore wind. So I guess it's appropriate to start now. Uh, look, this, and I think also for me, the interesting thing in, in that interview was the discussion, uh, which I continually think about in regard to transmission uh, and in development generally, is what is the appropriate balance of roles between the federal, between government and the private sector. And I think, how do you speed it up? Well, you work on all the different bits simultaneously, Giles. But look, I, I guess uh, um, uh, that, that's, I've been working hard to keep up. I've probably run out of things, any value add at the moment. Yes. Oh, look, I just want to make mention of one other transaction that was done this week. That's the BP purchase of a 40% stake in the Asia Renewable Energy Hub. This is this 30 billion, 26 gigawatt of wind and solar, looking at green ammonia markets and, um, and green hydrogen for the domestic thing. That is really interesting. Um, congratulations on the various people for putting that together. It got, kind of got buried in the crisis. Um, I think it was an announcement that was supposed to be made a couple of weeks ago, but um, it took a while to sort of dot the I's and cross the T's. But um, certainly BP moving in there with their know-how of making um, multi, you know, tens of billion dollar projects, then I think we're going to see more of these really big players in that market. So that is one to watch. Uh, yes, it did. And the uh, uh, connection to uh, the Northern Territory project to Singapore also continues to progress with the appointment of bankers and various other point people like uh, Bechtel, 
to do the de uh, detailed design. So, you know, it's great to see that these ongoing projects are proceeding through the current crisis. But look, Giles, I think we'll have a lot to talk about next week. Uh, uh, we've gone long again uh, this week. Uh, have you got any final thoughts? No, I haven't, apart from thanking everyone for listening in and um, thanking, of course, our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon and our new sort of mid-podcast sponsor, Jet Charge. Um, thank you to you, David. And um, good luck to everyone trying to make um, make sense of this energy crisis. And um, presumably the lights will still be on next week and we'll be able to download another podcast. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.